This is Splice. Morning, Rochelle. Morning, Alan. 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 That reverb's really working well for you. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> okay, Richard, should we uh, kick things off? Let's kick things off. Mm -hmm. uh, we're being we're being recorded, but I want to make sure that I'm saying your name right. So it's Amin Tant. Yes. Wonderful. Okay. Silence on the floor. Something like that. Good morning, everybody. It's uh, June the 4th, uh, the first Friday of June. Can you believe it? We're halfway through the year already. Uh, welcome to Splice Lo-Fi. It's our weekly check-in with, with the community. Uh, we're recording this, and we're going to make this publicly available on our website for those of you who, who can't join us today. Um, we would love for you to speak openly, and if you want to be taken off the record, let us know, and we'll edit you out in post. Otherwise, this recording will go out onto the internet as it is right after this recording. So put yourself on mute if you're not speaking as well, but remember to unmute yourself when you speak. And of course, this is a conversation. This is very informal. We would also love to hear questions at the end of this. And if you have questions, but you don't want to speak them out, put them in the uh, put them in the Telegram chat, and we'll represent for you. But listen, we're really excited to have Emin Tant with us this morning. They've had such a great journey. Uh, um, you know, let me let me count this out. You've been a you've been a Reuters correspondent, a program manager at Fundiar. Um, we we're big Fundiar fans. Uh, this is, of course, the Tech Innovation Lab in Yangon, and a freelance journalist. Um, and you casually won a Pulitzer along the way. Uh, now you work with our dear friends at Frontier. Uh, a, how did you and Frontier find each other? Um, well, I've been reading Frontier for years. Um, you know, I grew up in the US, and there were very few outlets that covered Myanmar in any sort of nuance or deep way. And, you know, as much as I respect wire services and all of that, uh, I'm, I'm a bit more of an academic at heart. So I think for me, Frontier was uh, a really good marriage of news uh, with sort of nuance and depth. And, you know, I've just kind of been friends with the people at Frontier for years. And so uh, when this opportunity came up, I applied basically the day <laughs> that I got my hands on the application. And I'm really excited to be working with them now. I know it's uh, it's early days, but I'm kind of wondering, you know, what what makes Frontier different from all the other places that you worked at before? And, you know, you've done a lot of work, uh, um, you know, and of course, the work that you've done that, that got you the uh, Pulitzer um, <laughs> along the way as well. Uh, what makes Frontier different for you? Um, I mean, Frontier is a magazine. I mean, it's not in print now, but uh, Frontier, because of that that history, um, you know, it's very normal for them to run 2,500, 3,000, 4,000 word pieces. Whereas at Reuters, um, and even at sort of a lot of these other places I worked at, you know, 1,000 words, 1,500 is really quite long and quite generous. Um, and so I think, you know, what I, really enjoy about Frontier is the fact that they are willing to, you know, write a 3000 word piece on uh, Jade Miners in Kitchen State, for example, and just kind of really highlight um, the, the human stories behind some of the, the big numbers that we see. Right. Um, you know, I heard a, uh, I heard an interview you did with Reuters Institute the other day, 
and you mentioned that journalism was an accidental career for you, in which, of course, you happen to win the top prize. So, um, what do you want to be when you when you grow up? A eh? <laughs> um, well, I thought I had, like, not only did I get into journalism kind of accidentally, because um, my first interview with Reuters was actually a uh, a source interview. They were interviewing me about um, the sort of pro-Rohingya, pro-human rights activism that my friends and I were doing. Uh, and then halfway through, it switched into a job interview. Um, <laughs> And then I thought I had retired from journalism, um, and, that, and that's why I had sort of gravitated towards NGO work, and I was working at Pandia. Um, but then I happened to quit uh, and was, you know, having some me time when the coup happened um, and couldn't really help myself at that point since I was free. Uh, I wanted to sort of participate in the best way I could. Um, so yeah, I don't know what is next necessarily, but I'm sure it will continue to be chaotic uh, if exciting. I think it's very exciting. Um, you know, can can you tell us a little bit more about about this new role that you have um, as as features editor? What would your day to day be like? Yeah, so I see this role. Um, I mean, the sort of job description uh, is about um, bringing in different voices to frontier of um, helping reporters write these sort of longer forms of stories um, and sort of mentor mentoring them through that process, especially because um, a lot of people are coming from a sort of more either breaking news background or a sort of like daily paper sort of background um, and then really getting into that mindset of writing these long form pieces, um, the sort of slower journalism. Um, and yeah, so I see this role as an opportunity to bring uh, even more diverse voices into uh, uh, the onto Frontiers platform, uh, as well as uh, helping uh, journalists who are working on Myanmar now um, really uh, improve their skills in terms of uh, the sort of slow journalism. I think um, perhaps one of the biggest challenges now is that every story is a coup story. Um, do you agree with that? Is that something that you've seen? Are you able to, to, you know, to commission stories that are not coup related? It's a little bit difficult to not center the coup uh, in everything you're doing now because it does touch, you know, every part of life. Um, so, you know, like even if you look at sort of like uh, what's happening in the special economic zones, well, you know, you can write about that, but how you can't write about that without also talking about um, how these companies are interacting with uh, the junta if they're choosing to interact with the uh, parallel government. Um, you know, it, it's just like, like in my brain, time is split between before the coup and after the coup. And I feel like right now with stories, it's impossible really to not touch upon the coup, at least in some way, because it does impact basically everything. And then, of course, we've got the pandemic um, um, complicating that uh, narrative as well um, in, in this scary, tragic way. And, and you know, just, just to uh, sort of continue along that, uh, train of thought, you've spoken a lot about what um, 
you know, we've all um, had opinions about the, the thing that international media gets wrong in its coverage of Myanmar, at least since the coup. Uh, how, what, what do you see, uh, what would you like to see done differently if you had to write a playbook? Yeah. Um, I feel like, and I mean, this is sort of my bias also as a sort of text journalist, but I think a lot of the coverage, um, we really focus on these sort of like spectacular images um and you know like millions of people on the street or hundreds of thousands of people on the street looks amazing um and then you know when those people start to dwindle at least on the street you know that seems like it's the story um and it we sort of don't necessarily or it's easy to miss stories sometimes because we're looking at how the pictures in front of us are changing and you know, I really advocate for people who, you know, embed in the countries that they report on if they're not from those areas um, and, and sort of working with local journalists and people who really know an area because it's very easy to miss things. It's very easy to misunderstand uh, what's happening if you're kind of just looking at what you can see in front of your eyes um, and, and, you, and you're not sort of uh, steeped in sort of the narratives that are going on on the ground um, and in, on social media, depending on sort of what your language abilities are. So, yeah, I mean, I think I would really advocate for uh, working with uh, people who have been in the area for a long time. And that includes for like, you know, all of us like Yangon based journalists who are reporting on um, things that are happening in uh, you know, the mountainous areas or, you know, in, in the sort of islands and stuff, right? Like, we don't know what's happening in those areas in the same way that people on the ground do. And I really advocate for bringing on uh, local partners as full partners and not as sort of like translator fixer uh, situations. Um, yeah, so just sort of introducing more nuance and just being humble in our awareness that we don't know everything and that you know just because we have the platform just because we may have the writing skills it doesn't mean that we're the best person to always be telling the story i love how how you said that um there was a a, a piece that i linked to in, in our newsletter uh today about how um local community journalists are are picking up this fight uh, in telling these stories as as large media organizations get banned from from operating. I think it was a Reuters link, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I thought that was a, a really interesting kind of approach because you also see a lot of of young people who who wanted to to describe what's going on in the country. Uh, and these are not people you would you would normally classify as a journalist, right? They don't wear the badge, uh, so to speak, um, which I thought was was really quite quite interesting um what do you think we can do as a as a community to support uh these types of of young people who are putting their lives at risk uh trying to explain to the world what's going on in their community yeah no i'm also really excited by these sort of like hyper local um news outlets that are popping up like you know some outlets are just like township based and like a township could just be a few thousand people right but it 
it matters that there's information reaching this audience about what's happening around them because you know what like otherwise they're sort of just because it's so small they're they're left to kind of trying to piece together things from uh just random social media posts that they may not have the resources and time to properly vet and, and they can't make decisions about their safety or anything else um without these people who have sort of picked up this mantle um i think one thing that we are currently seeing that's really great is sort of people who have been more formally trained as journalists whether just through their job experience or um through their education or both um going in and and working in those organizations and mentoring people and sort of putting aside um the sort of ego boost and salary to be frank that comes with working at a bigger outlet and saying you know what like it's more important for me in this moment to inform this audience who doesn't have anything else than it is for me to sort of further my career. Um, yeah, and I think sort of opening up that conversation on who counts as a journalist, um, who gets to access resources uh, that are, you know, reserved for journalists for very good reasons, since we're often under threat. Um, and sort of sharing those resources, I think, is really, really important. Um, Something that's been frustrating me recently is that a lot of the organizations that do support journalists um, do often make this distinction between, you know, quote unquote, proper journalists and citizen journalists. Yeah, I, I, you know, Alan and I talk a lot about journalism with a capital J and how that that idea needs to fade in a positive way to be more inclusive of of you know people um, who are telling stories about their communities, and it, it it seems to me that you're in a great position now to be able to assemble those voices and give them a seat at the frontier table, if you like, um, and maybe you know because Frontier has such a large international audience, uh, perhaps this is a great opportunity to actually use those um, journalists from townships and include those stories to tell uh, perhaps use frontier and to tell those stories on a much larger uh, at a much larger scale yeah definitely um and i think it's also sort of extra important in a place like myanmar because people because travel is even before the coup travel is quite difficult um and people all often don't sort of leave the geographic areas they're in. And it's such a large, geographically large country and such a diverse country um, that, yeah, like these sorts of platforms, I think are really important for people to understand the, the space they live in and the people they live with. Like, I remember a few years ago, I was interviewing this uh, woman who was, you know, very concerned about what she saw as the sort of impending Islamic invasion of Myanmar um, to be turned into like a, a sort of Indonesia, but on the mainland of Southeast Asia. And she had never met a Muslim before. Like she'd never seen a Muslim in real life. She'd never talked to anyone. Um, and yet she had, she was living with this sort of very deep fear, right? And, you know, we can say that that's very racist and um, xenophobic and all sorts of things, but 
you know, her feelings were very real. And it came from a place of just not a lack of information, but information that wasn't true that, you know, she had acquired over her life. And I think it's very important in the face of, especially now, the sort of global disinformation uh, situation we find ourselves in to make sure that we are putting out information that can be helpful to people, that makes the world a better place, um, and not sort of just isolate ourselves into uh, the situation where, you know, we know the truth. And so we don't necessarily need to to sort of address conspiracies or you know, address things that sort of seem very blatantly, obviously wrong. Yeah, I I think that's that's an important point to to be made. Uh, we've seen Myanmar go through these incredible swings in you know in popular movements and uh, and whatnot. Um, uh, at this point, I wanna I wanna throw the the floor open to to questions from other people in this community um, who would have far more interesting questions than than I do. Uh, does anyone want to ask uh, a, a question? Just unmute yourself. I have a question, if I may. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> okay. So, what's um, uh, what are you hopeful on a um, a on a on a larger scale um, uh, beyond uh, beyond just frontier? Uh, what are you hopeful for in Myanmar media this year um, from from the other voices uh, in there? You know, Myanmar now, Irrawaddy. What what's what are your uh, what do you um, do? You work with those guys. Are you are they part of your network? Um, I mean, I have friends with uh, journalists from other outlets. Um, I think Myanmar is a very interesting media space in that everyone kind of has their own little niche. Uh, you know, Myanmar now is known for their sort of like kind of really amazing and brave uh investigative pieces that and they're not afraid to sort of go head to head with you know very powerful people in the country i think frontier is very good at um these sort of deep stories about um the sort of inequities that exist in myanmar and how that uh sort of shapes the very landscape that people live on um Irrawaddy is very good for sort of like daily breaking news um yeah um i think one thing that i'm quite excited about uh, that kind of ties into that is just uh, how sort of collaborative the, the journalist space is. Um, even before the coup, you know, you could go online to the, the Myanmar Journalist Support Network uh, Facebook page group uh, and you could ask people for like contact resources and people would often give it to you. Um, you know, like things that people tend to hold pretty close to the chest. But right now, people are even more open to sharing people, you know, you hear conversations between journalists saying like, hey, I heard this, I have no capacity to cover this. Is anyone interested in it? I think it's an interest, you know, it's an important story to tell. Um, and there, there's just this sort of renewed sense, or maybe intensified sense of solidarity amongst journalists. Um, but I think we're also seeing really good and interesting conversation about ethics. Um, you know, there was a journalist earlier on at the coup who essentially doxed uh, 
a bunch of Chinese nationals and people called him out. He apologized. You know, there was a good conversation about sort of um, implicit bias uh, and xenophobia in uh, Myanmar. There was a good conversation about privacy rights. Um, you know, like I think these sorts of conversations are always going to be good to improve the field, you know, as long as they're being had in good faith. Um, and these conversations are oftentimes now being had in the, the open where um, on Twitter, especially where, you know, there's a lot more people, Myanmar people online now, uh, on Twitter at least, uh, as opposed to a platform like Facebook. And they're sort of seeing why journalism is important as a field, the role it serves and sort of why it can be trusted at least, you know, more than kind of whatever group message you've been forwarded on Facebook Messenger. I, I'm sure there's a lot of those. Um, questions for A. This is Juni here. I have a question for A. Um, I was in my first trip to Myanmar was in 2007, just after the uh, Saffron Revolution. Uh, and it was kind of an official trip where a group, you know, as ASEAN journalists, we were allowed into the country. Um, we spoke to Ross Dunkley at that time, was uh, editor. Myanmar Times, or the owner of Myanmar Times, and you know he showed us how papers had to be submitted. It was a weekly paper then. Uh, there were no dailies, I think, at that point in time, except for the New Life of Myanmar. Um, is there a censorship regime now uh, with the papers, or is it sort of you know there's just what's the situation like now in in Myanmar? Do they have to submit contents, or is it not? Is it sort of useless now to, to try and even attempt to censor that way? So. Basically, there's no more, almost no more print media, um, at least in terms of the sort of big uh, national formal um, publications. So, um, you know, Myanmar now has lost its publishing license. Um, a, a number of other organizations have lost their license. Uh, Frontier is no longer printing uh, our, our magazine. All of our stories are online now. Um, when you do see print media, it is the sort of like very informal, often quite short uh, publication. So there's the, the Spring Revolution. It is a daily newsletter. It's two pages. Um, it's run by an anonymous collective. Uh, they upload their uh, the the PDF onto Google Drive every day, and they share that. Um, and you know, various groups on the ground uh, access this Google Drive, print it, and you know whatever shop or you know printers they can find locally and uh spread those out uh physically just by hand and you know we're, we're seeing a situation in which formal media um or at least sort of like formally recognized media cannot print um but are you know sort of in a very uncensored way for the most part um publishing online and then you're seeing these sort of uh anonymous groups that are that are printing but don't have any sort of formal infrastructure, right? Like they're essentially uh, relying on volunteers uh, who are responsible for their own safety, responsible for the printing and whatever cost that comes with that uh, to, to distribute uh, physical publications. Um, I think there is censorship that's happening, uh, although not formally. Well, other than revoking licenses, so an attempt to sort of just completely shut publications up, there isn't any other real formal censorship. I think the majority of the censorship is happening 
through this sort of like psychological pressure. So, you know, they if they arrest a few people in your organization, how hard are you going to go against the regime? Um, you know, how willing would you be to call them uh, to to sort of press them if you see that they're lying during a press conference, right? Like your colleagues could die in jail um, or you're sort of just always under threat. You know, do you go to a press conference? Uh, do you ask hard questions to generals while you're surrounded by soldiers in a city that is occupied by soldiers? Um, yeah, so I think the the censorship is much more the sort of psychological warfare that's happening, and it's it's happening on a much more informal level, barring the the actual license removal. Um, Peter, did did I see that you were going to jump in with a question? Yeah, sure. Hi there. Um, it's kind of a follow up actually to to the last one, which is I'm curious as to how you can handle covering the the junta itself. So obviously they're reaching out to get international journalists to legitimize them by doing interviews and so on but how do you handle the fact that you've got this kind of monolithic actor in the country which is violently opposed to your existence but that you have to in some way figure out how to actually interact with um yeah i think on that front uh myanmar journalists are not unpracticed at that um so even in the last five years when, you know, ostensibly the NLD was in power and we had largely civilian rules, you know, journalists were being arrested, um, whether that was by uh, sort of uh, military affiliated militias at the borders when they were covering things um, or sort of people were assaulted, like people, um, one journalist was shot while on vacation. Uh, and, you know, the when the they pieced together the story, like the local police station had called his hotel to ask him if he was there and where he was bef right before he was shot. Um, you know, like my colleagues at Reuters were imprisoned for over 500 days um, and a lot of laws, uh, especially around defamation um, and sort of incitement uh, and these the sort of laws that can punish speech were used uh, against journalists. So, you know, like there was always journalists in jail, um, but now the sort of added danger is where you're just that much less likely to get out. Um, you're that much more likely to, to, to be sort of tortured uh, and potentially die. I guess the, the newer element is that people are more likely to die than they were in the past. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think people are kind of, people have heightened uh, security uh, and safety measures from what they were used to doing, but it, it's more of a continuum as opposed to sort of a break um, from what we were doing in the past. Sure. I guess, I guess the thing I was also wondering, though, is, is there ever going to be a point where as as journalists in that, in that context, where you ever negotiate access to actually talk to the troops directly, to, to, to be involved in some of that circus that takes place as they try to kind of push their message out, or are you always going to be separate and in opposition and, and um, yeah? Um, I mean, you know, there are people who go to press conferences uh, right now that the hunter is having. Um, I know um, Radio Free Asia went um, and they were sort of, their journalists were lauded. Um, so they got a lot of pushback from people because everyone else was trying to boycott, uh, but they went. 
uh, and you know these are sort of live stream events, um, and they asked fairly tough questions, and people, you know, they they gained a lot of praise and apologies uh, afterwards um, because they they sort of did force um, the the spokesperson to answer some difficult questions um, and kind of embarrassed him a little bit. Um, and I think you know the the sort of even um, mediated trips like. Uh, the the one that CNN and the Southeast Asia Globe uh, was part of, you know, could bear really interesting information. Um, I think the Southeast Asia Globe has done a really good job of uh, leveraging that trip um, or leveraging good information out of that trip, even though it was meant to be sort of this PR tour. Um, yeah, so I think so long as the junta decides that, you know, the act of journalism is a crime. Uh, I think we, you know, are going to be sort of working in opposition to the way in which they operate. Uh, yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, with that, thank you so much for for your time. I think this is this is um, this is fantastic. Um, Rashad, final comments before we wrap this up as we. As we have, well, we've kind of overrun by ten minutes now. So we have, but yeah, no, this was this was. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, thank you so much, A. Um, come back and see us uh, uh, soon. We'd love yeah. to check in with you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be in the Splice Group. Yay! Absolutely. Alan, Thanks, a. Uh, I think you're on. You're on mute. That's right. So I was going to say that that um, our friend Yanok has a uh, has a question. Uh, he's he's apparently on another call <laughs> while listening to this one, uh, and so he sent his uh, his question or I guess his point on um, on the Telegram chat instead. He says, um, "I wanted to ask about what would be a good way to go about being more careful uh, about the additional sensitivities and security issues with today's climate in Myanmar, especially given that there are a lot." more new community-based media orgs coming up. For example, two weeks ago when the junta forces were attacking Mindat and the Chin defense uh, force was defending a town, I think Kin uh, Thit Media posted live updates of the battle and then immediately took it down after people pointed out that this is a highly sensitive material pertaining to a live conflict. Any thoughts about that one before we go? Yeah, so I think there's sort of twofold issue there. Uh, one is that especially, you know, one of the dangers, I guess, of um, or the risk of uh, this new cohort of journalists is um, a lack of training uh, and education can mean that you are making mistakes and learning as you go um, and making sort of avoidable mistakes. Uh, so, and, and you're not learning about sort of like uh, hostile environment training, um, digital security, uh, and things that, you know, one would generally learn through either your organization or mentors or teachers. Uh, so I think support in terms of those resources are really important uh, to keeping not just the journalists safe, but the sources they interact with, right? Like, you know, a lot of the work or a lot of the time I, I spent in Myanmar, I was trying to get my sources to get onto encrypted apps. Um, so that when they spoke to me, they weren't taking unnecessary risks. Um, but, you know, it, 
it, it's very easy to just talk to someone on Messenger and get some quotes and like to write a story, but you know, it, it's not safe for them and it's hard. It, it can be difficult to sort of invest the time to do that. Um, and then I think on the other side, or the, the sort of other issue, um, especially with these sort of live streaming things, um, you know, not all news should be printed or or published at all times, right? Like we need to be constantly aware of uh, safety issues for our sources um, and sort of be aware of um, why we decide news is important to share uh, and, and be able to stand firm in that, right? Like, you know, of course people make mistakes and these sorts of things, but I think it erodes public trust if people are printing things and then uh, taking them away uh, and sort of just being in a way, I guess, too open to public pressure. Like, I think we need to work with humility and acknowledge mistakes. But, you know, if you decided to print something, you need to explain why you retracted it or why you stood by it um, in order to sort of not just build a public trust in the institution, but also public trust in your uh, outlets decision-making abilities. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much for your time, A. This has been really helpful and, and, and you've given us all a lot to think about. Um, thank you so much for your time. We'll, uh, we'll edit this down and put it out on, uh, on the web. Um, thank you again for, for spending your, your Friday morning with us. And to everybody else, have a great weekend. We will catch you again next week. Thank you for having me. Thank you, A. Bye. See you next Bye, Friday. Bye. Bye. See you. Bye. It's a splice.